0: Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Sarah Percival on October 8, 2018. Sarah is a classically trained actress and professional storyteller. She's created a number of CDs of her storytelling, and we sampled two in the interview. She is also creator of State of the Heart Storytelling, which provides a platform for her storytelling initiatives. Her most recent endeavor is called Stitch Story and Stillness, which she explains in the interview. I started the interview by asking Sarah where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up.
1: I grew up in a very small hamlet in England, UK. It was in the south of England. It was a dairy farming area and there was was a lot of farming that went on. We lived two doors away from the little chapel in the village, which was dedicated to St. Francis. And it was a beautiful little chapel. It was very small. And so I grew up walking down these little country lanes to the chapel with my family. And we were a church-going family. My parents were fairly active in the church. My father played the organ. He read the lesson. My mother did the flowers in the church. and it was a very quaint existence really so let me paint a picture for you of what happened at christmas time in this little chapel so the chapel was dedicated to st francis who who is my favorite saint because i grew up with all the stories of st francis and the animals and every christmas everyone would gather in this little chapel and we would have a service and people would bring their animals into the chapel the dogs and hamsters and donkeys all sorts of creatures would come actually come into this little chapel and then we would take long poles and we would hang lanterns at the end of these poles and with candles in and we'd walk down the road into the, the cowshed, and we would sit on the straw And there were the cows wondering what we were all doing there in the middle of the night and munching on their hay. My dad would take a guitar and we would sing carols to these cows. And my father would make me sing Away in a Manger when I was a little girl, which was very magic. Because if you sing it in a cow shed, when you get to the bit about the cattle are lowing, the cattle really are lowing. (laughs) (laughs) And so it was um, a very sweet childhood, and religious life was part of the tradition of my family. And yes, it was definitely a focus of my family.
0: How did your spiritual journey from there take you to the Baha'i Faith?
1: Yes, that's a good question, because I wasn't looking for anything. I was very comfortable within the, uh, my familiar religious landscape. I continued to go to church when I, I left home at about 19 and I moved to London. I found a church that I really loved there. And I had a very good relationship with the vicar and his wife, uh, who were quite interested in theatre. So we, they used to take me to the theatre. And I definitely wasn't looking for another religion. What happened was I was an actress at that time, and um, that was my training as a classical actress, and I was in a, a Shakespeare play, Twelfth Night, touring in Europe, and alongside me within the cast was another young woman, and because we were the two young women in the show, we shared a hotel room together, and I noticed beside her bed she had prayer books, and the names in the prayer books, I couldn't re- even read. They had all these funny accents. And uh, and I said to her, I also noticed she, she was very different from many of the actresses that I worked with previously. She didn't gossip and she didn't drink. When we all had a drink at the pub afterwards, she, she wouldn't drink. And I got to asking her, you know, why don't you drink? And she would just describe it as a way of life. She said, well, it's a way of life that I've chosen for myself. And when I got to know her more, she shared this prayer book with me. And she invited me to um, something that used to happen in the UK, which was called the Baha'i Arts Academy. And this was a week in the summer where anyone could go and do a course in the arts and it was the most amazing environment. It was very encouraging environment to be in. And I could really see in this environment how one's creative life and spiritual life were very intertwined. They were very part of each other. And that wasn't something that I'd particularly experienced before. And it really struck a very loud bell with me. I really responded to it. So she invited me to come along to the Arts Academy, and I went. And uh, I was quite suspicious because I I didn't know anything about the Baha'i Faith. And so I thought it must be some strange thing. (laughs) But when I got there, I realized it was an incredibly wonderful thing, and I was full of uh, inspiration and respect for it. And I guess my journey continued from there. It was quite a long journey. Yeah, it was quite a struggle, really, because I really loved the faith that I had grown up with and that I was still attached to. But I felt very strongly inspired by the Baha'i teachings. And I really thought this idea of progressive revelation, which is that each of these great teachers who bring a new religion They build on the ideas of the one that has gone before, and then they add to it. And so you see all these great beings who brought religions as part of one book. They're different chapters in one book, and they're they're building on each other. And that, that was a new idea for me, but one that was really interesting. Yeah, after a couple of years of really investigating and of great struggle because I had this tremendous fear that I would somehow betray Jesus by becoming a Baha'i. But when I realized that I didn't have to deny anything that I already believed, then it was an easy step forward and one that I have never regretted.
0: And what were your parents' reaction to you becoming a Baha'i?
1: Oh, they were amazing. I have great parents, really. They were so encouraging. I think I've, I'm very lucky in that they really trust me. and I think they really trusted my instincts and my decisions. And my mother, actually, the second year that I went to the Baha'i Arts Academy, she came with me for the whole week. And towards the end of the week, she said to one of my friends, oh, Sarah will become a Baha'i. And I said to her, mom, how do you know that? I don't even know that myself. She said, oh, you just belong. It's obvious. So mothers are amazing because they often see things in their children before their children see it. So she completely saw it and understood it. And my father as well, I would talk to him about it. And when I had just become a Baha'i, he came up to London to listen to a talk that I gave And it was so lovely that he was there and he took part. And so they were very much with me on the journey, although it's uh, my father's passed away now, that he was always very encouraging. And my mother as well, always completely understood. And uh, my brothers as well. One of my brothers also came to the Arts Academy with me. So I've had a lot of support in my journey, which has been really wonderful.
0: So I'm speaking with Sarah Percival professional storyteller who's produced a number of CDs of telling stories. And she's the creator of the platform State of the Heart Storytelling. So Sarah, I thought what we would do is from your works, maybe sample a couple of your stories. And maybe you could explain a little bit of what inspired you first to create the particular CD in which the sample comes from, and then what inspired you to create this story in particular. So the first one is from your CD, Bag of Jewels. So what inspired you to create this CD called Bag of Jewels?
1: Well, I became a storyteller really because I started to question my life as an actress. And I started to question it when I came across the Baha'i faith. I started to question a lot of things. And I started to look deeper into things. And I started to ask myself, what am I actually doing in my work? And because I had received so much uh, spiritual nourishment from the teachings of the Baha'i faith and the, the beautiful prayers that are within the faith, I wanted to really shape my work so that I would be offering to the world something that was more spiritually nourishing for both for my soul and for other people's as well. So I wanted to make really meaningful work. And I wanted to work with material that I was interested in and that I thought other people would connect to. And I think stories are so tremendously helpful for us. They're like wonderful maps we can really find where we are in life because life gets pretty confusing sometimes it gets hard and uh, we need to find ways of finding our way through that so yes stories become like a sort of vitamin tablet that you can take they open up inside you and they can be tremendously strengthening And they can make you think about things in a different way. And so I had started to collect wisdom stories, stories that really have this nub of wisdom inside. And we're so busy chewing on the delicious humor or imagination in the story that we often don't realize this pearl of wisdom that's in the middle of of all this. So I, I had a collection of wisdom stories, that I wanted to frame in some way. And through the Baha'i teachings, I had got very interested in the concept of the virtues. Now, obviously, this is not something that's uh, peculiar to the Baha'i faith. It's it's within all religions. And even if you're not religious, uh, you can still understand what courage is, what patience is. Uh, but these stories celebrated the virtues. Every story shows a person's journey through certain experiences and how they then, through their experiences, achieved a certain virtue. So this was the sort of framework for this collection of stories.
0: For Bag of Jewels, you mean?
1: Yes, for the Bag of Jewels, yes.
0: You suggested that we play Meat of the Tongue, and I'm wondering if you could tell us uh, what inspired you to tell this story and maybe give a little synopsis of what people would hear.
1: Certainly. Uh, Well, Meat of the Tongue is a wonderful story told in many different ways. And of course, when you're a storyteller, you have to take a story, you have to strip it down to its bare bones, and then you have to reflesh it in the way that you see or feel the story. So you tell it in your own style. And what really appealed to me about this story, without giving too much away, is that it really celebrated positive relationships and the quality of joyfulness. And we could all do with that. (laughs)
0: Before playing Meat of the Tongue, I want to let folks know that the composer of the music associated with this story is Carolyn Sperry Fox.
1: Meat of the Tongue Once upon a time, there was a king who ruled a land where the people who were healthy were pleasingly plump. Now, His queen was a vision of loveliness. She was beautifully plump and curvy. Her hair shone and her eyes sparkled. The king loved his wife and showered her with expensive gifts. Diamond necklaces, ruby rings, emerald earrings. She flashed and sparkled, glimmered and glinted as she swayed through the palace. She should have been as happy as could be. She had a loving husband and everything her heart desired. But as time went on, the queen lost her sparkle. She became thin and sad, her hair lank and lifeless. The king tried to make her happy with more gifts and priceless jewels, But every day she just looked more and more miserable. He tried feeding her all kinds of different food to cure her, but nothing worked. What was he to do? The king started to look round his court at all the other women, and he noticed one in particular. She was the wife of one of his servants. She was beautifully plump and curvy. Her hair shone, her eyes sparkled, and her smile flashed brighter than any of the jewels he had given his wife. He summoned his servant. Why do you have such a beautiful wife? asked the king. How is she so plump and curvy? What makes her hair shine and her eyes sparkle? And how come she is always smiling? That is easy, Majesty, said the servant. Every night I give her meat of the tongue. Meat of the tongue, said the king. Hmm, well, well. He summoned the royal chef. For every meal from this day forward, the queen shall be served meat of the tongue, decreed the king. Meat of the tongue, majesty? Yes, meat of the tongue and only meat of the tongue. So from that day on, at every meal, the queen's plate was piled up with every kind of tongue you could imagine. She ate camel tongue, goat tongue, sheep tongue, duck tongue, pigeon tongue, lizard tongue. She ate baked tongue, fried tongue, roast tongue, grilled tongue, stuffed tongue, smoked tongue, steamed tongue, pickled tongue, tongue soup, tongue pie, tongue roulade, tongue fricassee, tongue provencal, tongue a la grec, tongue stroganoff, tongue tapenade, tongue cassoulet, tongue sabayon, tongue bolognese and tongue kebab. Poor Queen. She hated eating all this tongue. Every mealtime there it was in front of her. Slippery, slimy, pink tongue. And, you know, some of those tongues even had hairs on them. Oh, she picked and she nibbled to please the king, but it was so disgusting. She grew even thinner and even more miserable. The king summoned his servant. Look, he said, I am worried about the queen's health. This meat of the tongue seems to have no effect. I have an idea. Let us swap wives for a while. I will keep yours in the palace and we will look after her like a queen. Take my wife home with you. And whatever is this meat of the tongue you feed your wife, please now give it to my wife. The servant agreed and the queen went to live in his humble little house. Time passed. One month, two months, three months went by. The king wondered how the queen was. He missed her with all his heart. One day he could bear it no longer and he walked into the town towards the servant's house and knocked on the door. The queen opened the door. But the king hardly recognised her. She was beautifully plump and curvy. Her hair shone, her eyes sparkled, and her smile dazzled him. My darling, he said, what has happened? Tell me, what has my servant been feeding you all this time? What is this meat of the tongue he talks of? Oh, my Dear husband, said the queen as she tucked her arm through his and they walked slowly back to the palace together. The meat of the tongue was not animal tongue. It was not bird tongue nor any other kind of tongue to eat. The meat of the tongue was stories, conversation, talking and laughing together. Every night the servant came home, he would sit me by the fire and tell me wonderful stories. He would ask me about my day, sing me songs and tell me all the funny things that happened at the palace. He made me laugh and he made my heart happy. That was the meat of the tongue he gave to me. And from that time on, every evening... The king and the queen would sit together by the fire, holding hands, telling each other stories, singing songs and laughing about all the funny things that happened in the palace. And do you know what? They lived happily ever after.
0: I'm speaking with Sarah Percival, professional storyteller, producer of a number of CDs of her storytelling, as well as the creator of State of the Heart Storytelling. And we just heard a sample of one of her stories called Me to the Tongue. Now, another work that you produced, Sarah, is called Women Who Changed the World. Now, what inspired you to create this CD?
1: Well, I'm a great believer in women, being a woman myself. I know how powerful creatures they are. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to really celebrate the achievements of women. So I wanted to make a collection of stories about women who did incredible things using peaceful methods who were very inspired by their particular faith. So the women on the CD are very culturally diverse And they're very spiritually diverse and there are modern women and there are women who were around a long time ago. And I think the stories really show that when a woman follows her calling and is able to listen to the voice inside herself, their own deep wisdom about what they should be doing in life, they can achieve miraculous things and they really can change the world and an, a very sweet thing that happened i i was told by a friend that her children listened to this story these stories in the in the car going to school and her son got out of the car to go to school and turned to his mum and said "Mummy." Were there ever any men who changed the world? <laughs> Which was really wonderful. So I'm so glad he started off life thinking that it was only women who changed the world.
0: <laughs> it's terrific. It's terrific. Which reminds me of a story. I have a granddaughter at home. And, you know, she gets in the habit of says, I can't do this. I can't do that. And my wife will say, but you're a girl. You can do anything. And she started saying that. You know, whenever she was doing something, she says, Oh, I'm a girl. I can do anything. And it was like, fantastic. <laughs> Good for great. your wife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. So I particularly asked you if we could play the story about Tahereh simply because she really is a well known historical figure in the Persian culture outside, really, of the Baha'i faith, in addition to being a heroine within the Baha'i faith. I really wanted people to be able to hear her story. So maybe you could give a little backstory before we play this story.
1: Certainly, yes. Tyre is still studied in Persian studies because she was an extraordinary poet, a very talented poet. And her work is still known and celebrated and studied. And within the Baha'i faith, she was one of the very early adherents of the Bab, who was the precursor, the herald, if you like, of Bahá'u'lláh, who was the prophet founder of the Baha'i faith. So the Bab really was letting people know that a great messenger was going to appear. And Tahereh was one of his first people who really believed this message. She was very, very unusual in that age because she really demanded to be educated. She was highly intelligent and Her father was in the priesthood. He was a religious teacher, and she used to hide behind the curtain of the room where he was teaching, which would be full of men, and she would hide there and listen to everything he said. And so she was very, very highly educated, and she could really Hold her own against any argument. She was often sort of embarrassing to her family because she was outspoken and she pointed out things that people hadn't seen. And she was sort of spiritually strident. She knew what she believed and she went forward with it. And she was also a great encourager of women. And she really wanted all women to be educated and she used to hold circles to teach women how to read and write which was uh highly highly unusual so she is an incredible inspiring woman
0: i also want to mention that the bob who as you said is a precursor to baha'u'llah from the baha'i perspective was a messenger of god in his own right, similar to Jesus and Muhammad, and you really could consider Tahereh one of the first 18 disciples of this messenger of God, similar to the first disciples of Jesus back in absolutely, the day.
1: Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely right. right. And she was the only woman amongst that number, but she was numbered amongst them as an equal. And it's interesting because I was with some children at the weekend. We do children's classes together and we are doing grade three at the moment where we discuss all these great teachers and the religions they brought and their stories. And we were actually studying Jesus. And I noticed within the, this curriculum, which is a Baha'i curriculum, how much Mary Magdalene is talked about. That really struck me the Baha'i way of engaging children with the story of Jesus. You know, Mary Magdalene is not forgotten. She's mentioned as much equally as the other disciples.
0: You know, that's interesting, Sarah, because even in the Mohammedan dispensation, Mohammed's daughter plays a huge role in Mm. the birth of Islam. It seems that there is a central female figure associated with these religious dispensations.
1: Yes, there is. And I think sometimes they're not celebrated enough. Their stories about them aren't told enough. That's one of the reasons I really wanted to create this CD. I think these women's stories just aren't told enough.
0: Before playing the story of Tahereh, I want to let folks know that the composer for the music associated with this story is Kelly Snook.
1: Tahereh. Tahereh was not supposed to listen to her father's classes, they were for boys, but she hid behind a curtain and listened to every word. Even though she was a young girl, when she disagreed with something he said, she boldly challenged him in front of hundreds of students. He must have been surprised, but even so, he gave her permission to join in, if she kept hidden behind the curtain. A girl's face was not supposed to be seen in public. Tahere's father was a highly respected teacher of religion, and although most women in Iran at that time couldn't read or write, he educated the women in his family. Tahereh excelled them all and was always thirsty to learn as much as she could. Her father wished she had been born a boy, then she could have been a brilliant and famous religious teacher and made the family proud. As she grew older, Tahereh grew into one of the most beautiful women in Iran. She wrote exquisite poetry, and people spoke of her rare and wonderful genius. She loved books and read everything she could. One day in her cousin's library, she found some books she had never seen before, writings that spoke of the coming of a new religion. That religion is known today as the Baha'i Faith, and millions of people follow its teachings. Tahereh asked if she could borrow the books, but her cousin feared that the modern thinking in the books would anger Tahereh's father, who had very traditional views. But Tahereh thought the teachings were wonderful and her heart thrilled to read them. Oh, when will the day come when new laws will be revealed on the earth? I shall be the first to follow these new teachings and to give my life for my sisters, she said. Tahereh travelled and told everyone she could about the teaching she had discovered and the ideas they spoke about. It was a new understanding of religion. In those days in Iran, it was very unusual to hear a female voice outside the women's quarters of the home. So while she spoke to the crowds, again, she had to sit behind a curtain while she talked, so no one saw her face. Her lectures attracted great numbers of people who were astonished by her words. She was charismatic, poetic, compelling, and spoke in brilliant, powerful ways. People came back again and again to listen to her. Opinion was divided. Was she a saint or a sinner? A meddler or a miracle? People who disagreed with her views threw stones at her in the street, but many were inspired to question what they believed and longed to hear more. The men in her family were furious with her and wanted her to stop talking about these new ideas. They said she would bring disgrace to the family. Her father loved her dearly and believed in her brilliance, but completely disagreed with her point of view. As a woman, her self-confidence and audacity were unusual for the time and her religious views considered so challenging that she was often imprisoned. Tahereh desperately wanted to go to a conference where people who also believed in the new teachings could discuss them. But first, she had to escape from the house where she was imprisoned. Her friends made a plan. She escaped at night, slipped through a gate in the high city walls, mounted a horse and rode to freedom. The conference was held in Bedashed, a quiet place of gardens and fields. During the conference, Tahereh did something very daring. She appeared in front of all the men without her veil on. At that time, to see such a pure, respected woman without her veil covering her head was utterly horrifying. They were speechless, astonished. Some ran away, others quickly covered their eyes, and one man even tried to slit his throat in horror. But Tyre took off her veil for a purpose, as a symbolic act, to announce a split with the traditions of the past. Her daring act proclaimed a new era, where men and women could be more equal, and women could be free and educated. When people heard what had happened at the conference and how Tahereh had appeared without her face covered, they were deeply shocked, and Tahereh was taken to Tehran, the capital city, and imprisoned in the house of the mayor. Everyone in the house grew to love her. Princesses, great ladies, many women gathered round to listen to her speak, and they were full of joy at her hopeful words. In many places where she had travelled, Tahereh had started circles for women, where she shared her knowledge. These learned women then went back to their towns and started women's circles there too. During her time in Tehran, she was presented to the king, who admired her beauty, and said, if she would give up her faith, he would marry her and give her great honor. But Tahereh would never give up her beliefs. Her faith was very strong. She would not marry the king and she wrote him an eloquent poem explaining why. The authorities no longer knew what to do with her. She challenged wise priests to debate with her, and her arguments were so skillful that the priests feared she was making them look like fools. They disobeyed the king's order to leave her alone and passed the death sentence on her. The night the guards came, Tyre looked more beautiful than ever. She was dressed in an elegant white silk gown like a wedding dress and wore a delicate perfume of roses. She had spent most of the day praying. They took her on horseback to a garden, strangled her with a silk scarf, and threw her body into a well. Before she died, she cried out, You can kill me as soon as you like, but you cannot stop the emancipation of women. Tyre was the first women's suffrage martyr. At a time and in a country where most women could not read or write, she excelled the most learned of men with her intellect. Where women were rarely seen outside the home, she travelled, and where no woman's voice was raised, she spoke. Today, millions of women all over the world are speaking out, calling for the education of girls and the equality of men and women. Tahereh worked for the freedom of her sisters by freeing herself and showed what a woman could do by doing it.
0: So I'm speaking with Sarah Percival, professional storyteller who's produced a number of CDs. We just talked about Women Who Changed the World, and in particular, we just heard the story that she tells about Tahereh. So Sarah, you have a platform that you call State of the Heart Storytelling. Maybe you could tell our listeners what that's all about.
1: I guess I started State of the Heart Storytelling as a statement against technology, (laughs) not that I'm particularly against technology because it's very helpful, but I could see in this world children attached to their screens. When I was growing up, I made puppets. I sewed things. I painted. I read books. I climbed trees. I probably would have been on my screen if it was around at the time, but I feel sad that children are are missing out on this really wonderful creativity that I experienced as a child. So you hear this phrase, state-of-the-art technology, and I wanted to play on that and to create state-of-the-heart storytelling because the work comes from my heart. It's delivered to the hearts of an audience, and I hope that it touches their heart. And I am interested in the things that come from the heart. I'm interested in what the heart makes and how the heart feels. And stories was really a way of investigating this, of sharing this, and of really coming off a screen and listening and being present with a story and being in a live theater environment. I should maybe explain also what a storyteller does. A storyteller does not read stories. A storyteller tells the story from their memory. And the story changes depending on the audience that the storyteller has. Because the story is alive. It is part structured, part improvised. So the story will shape, depending on the reaction of the audience and that particular chemistry of performance. So State of the Heart really was a platform where I could do live performance. I ran workshops, really teaching people the art of storytelling. I consulted with various organisations about how to put storytelling within their organisation and I did my recorded storytelling as well, all from State of the Heart Storytelling.
0: And where can people find State of the Heart Storytelling online?
1: You just need to go to com, And Percival is spelt P-E-R-C-E-V-A-L. There's no I's in it. That will tell you all about it. And you can also download the stories and you can buy some of the stories are available on CD and some of them are just available as downloads from that website, sarahpercival.com.
0: So I am speaking with Sarah Percival, professional storyteller who's produced a number of CDs and created the platform State of the Heart Storytelling, which she was just talking about and which you could find on Percival.com, which I will post that link and I post this interview on the website. So, Sarah, you were talking to me just prior to beginning the interview about a new endeavor that you're starting, and why don't you describe to folks what that is?
1: Oh, thank you, Warren. Yes, I'm really excited about this new step, actually. I've had to change shape a bit recently. I've moved house. I've lived in London for 30 years. I've absolutely loved it. It's been a real buzz. But my husband and I felt that it was time that we wanted to move to the countryside and we were lucky enough to find a a wonderful house on the edge of the Ashdown Forest. It's a very big forest in Sussex in south of England. So we're now living in a house in a very rural community. And I've really wound up for the moment a lot of my performance aspect. I've done that because I got burnt out after so many years of performing and so many hundreds of stories in my mind. It started to get a bit heavy. Strangely enough, after 30 years professional performance career, I began to get a stage fright, which is a very peculiar thing to happen. So in order to calm myself, I... Did a a course in mindfulness, which I find very helpful. And I also uh, started to stitch and I started to make quilts. I found that as I was sitting and stitching these. Quilts. I could practice my mindful breathing and having mindful attention on what it was that I was creating. And it was a very happy place for me. I call it a creative refuge. And I thought, you know, this works so well for me. I would really like to share it with other people. So before I left London, I started to combine these three things So I call it Stitch, Story, and Stillness. That's really the nature of my work. And I started to work with a group of women who were vulnerable women. They were excluded. They were marginalized. A lot of them were refugees and asylum seekers. And I brought my quilts in to show them. I told them the stories that were woven into the quilts, the women that inspired the quilts, the sort of emblems and design of the quilts what the meaning was and I also started to get them just to stitch in a meditative way we would do very meditative stitching and it was a real revelation and I found that When you're sitting in a small audience with just a circle of women who all have a quilt spread on their knees and they're all looking at the flowers or the bees or the colors, whatever it was, they would all have something to say. They would open up and they began to tell their own stories and their stories reminded other women of their own stories. And so these stories just kind of kept bubbling up. And so this is really the start of the work that I think I'll be doing now. I'm really in a process of discovery. I'm not quite sure exactly the shape that this work will take, but that's very exciting to me.
0: And you called it again, Stitch Story and Stillness?
1: Yes, I made a sort of, it's a, I guess it's a holding website at the moment, mm-hmm. which is a mindfulcreativity.co.uk. And that really shows a bit of my stitch work. It tells a little bit of the story of why I'm doing it. So the Strap Line is really stitch story and stillness because those are the three elements that I combine, really for, for an experience for people, a meditative, quiet hopefully creatively enriching experience where I can tell stories in a conversational way which is you know doesn't make me anxious and they can tell their stories and I've had some really wonderful experiences of women really opening up and talking and saying things they'd never said before and really opening their hearts
0: well Sarah thank you so much for sharing your work with us
1: Thank you, Warren. It's, it's really been a great pleasure. I hope you
0: enjoyed that interview with Sarah Percival, professional storyteller. I'll post links to her work on the website abahaiperspective.com, where you can also find other interviews. You can find this interview also on my YouTube channel, a Baha'i Perspective. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes by searching for a Baha'i Perspective. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective.
2: My verse with my eyes closed, I first page my pen bleeds with the words of unity and peace. You see an image of you and me, and I paint with the colors of my dreams. So we run together with these beautiful feet and spread it to the world like a shower of spring. How exquisite it is. How the truth, How If I can tell you the truth about what I see, you and I make us best believe we the leaves. Off one tree, we the waves, off one sea. Come together, come together, come together for world peace. Come together, come together, come together as one. Please, for peace in the world. Clap for it, clap for it, clap for it. For the unity of man, clap for it, clap for it, clap for it. Clap for it. To the rhythm of the beat, clap for it, clap for it, clap for it, one world, y'all, one world, so let's work at it.